Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy for you to create your own professional website or online portfolio. And now you can also create your own logo using Squarespace logo. This is a terrific service. It's very easy to use. Packages start at just $8 a month and you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Also, every single website design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that will match the overall style of your website so your content will always look great on every device, every time. So let's go start a trial right now no credit card required, and start building your website. Visit squarespace.com, and when you sign up at Squarespace, be sure to use the offer code Other People. Again, that offer code is Other People. You do that, you get 10% off. Go to squarespace.com right now and take advantage of this amazing deal. It's the very best way to build or improve your web presence. Squarespace. It's everything you need to create an exceptional website. So go and create one. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is leaving something to the imagination. This will hopefully one day be considered a very minor artifact of late capitalism. How are you today? What's going on? What's happening? Are you good? I just employed uh, incorrect usage. Are you good? My name is Brad Listy. I'm reporting, as always, from the home office in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. And uh, what's happening? AWP is now over. I think I've covered that ground. Uh, though today's conversation, I should mention, uh, with Natalie Bazil was recorded during AWP. Natalie was up in Seattle, uh, as was my last guest, Adrienne Heron. So you're going to hear Natalie and I talk a little bit, uh, a little bit about AWP at the outset, but that's it as far as AWP goes on this program until next year. So otherwise, uh, what has been going on? Well, uh, the Oscars happened 
on Sunday. Did you guys watch that? I can't resist it personally. And, uh, you know, judging by my Twitter feed, I'm not alone in my uh, weakness. And, you know, I think there were like, what, 50 million people who watched this thing. And it's always bad. It's always sort of horrible. And, you know, then for a moment or two, it gets genuinely emotional. And you have these, uh, these uh, egos collected in this room. They're under a microscope. And uh, everybody's incredibly beautiful. And they're talented. And they're incredibly wealthy. And uh, especially if you're a creative person, you know, as you're watching this thing, uh, you might start feeling a little bit inspired. You might start dreaming. Uh, and then you start thinking about where you actually are in the grand scheme of things and what you look like and how much money you don't have. And then you start feeling a little anxious and you start thinking to yourself, what the fuck am I doing with my life? When am I going to win an Oscar? Why am I so poor? Why am I not in that selfie? with Bradley Cooper and Ellen DeGeneres. Why do I have 37% body fat? I'm going to be dead soon. And it, you know, it just spirals out of control. <laughs> I'm not even kidding either. I was just talking about this uh, a few minutes ago with a friend of mine. I have this theory, uh, you know, that after the initial spike in positivity, the Academy Awards produce uh, an enormous sadness around the world. <laughs> and yeah, I get it. There are some positives. Yes, it can be entertaining. Yes, it can be a little bit inspirational and uh, it's fun to mock on Twitter and what have you. But you know, that's just the sugar high. And when the high wears off, there's a hangover and it's real. And so what I'm telling you here today is that the net effect of the Academy Awards is darkness. The net effect is a stultifying mixture of sadness and anxiety and despair. It's like Facebook, <laughs> which is why I'm no longer on Facebook. Because you know what? Ultimately, it just makes you feel bad in ways that are hard to define, you know? You participate in it as a spectator or, you know, as a participant, I guess, if you're using social media and then you walk away from the screen with a kind of low level sickness of the soul. So that's my theory. And I have no hard evidence to support it as is the case with nearly all of my theories, but I do suspect that uh, mood swings turn violent on Oscar Sunday, especially among creative people. <laughs> uh, just like, uh, incidentally, just like domestic abuse cases uh, skyrocket on Super Bowl Sunday, where you have, you know, men uh, turning uh, angry and irrational while watching this uh, gladiator blood sport, which is a true thing. It's real. They've done studies on this, there are statistics. So if anyone out there is a, a social scientist, a behavioral uh, psychologist, or whatever the case may be, uh, I, I want someone to do a study on Oscar Sunday to see if the corollaries that I'm suggesting are substantiated by evidence. So if someone could please do that and then get back to me, I would appreciate it. <laughs> do you like how I, I come up with a theory? I offer absolutely zero hard evidence 
And then I casually ask my listeners to expend a tremendous amount of time and energy conducting painstaking scientific research on my behalf. That's what I do. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is uh, Natalie Bazil. I had a lot of fun talking with her. She emanates goodness. That's what I think. She has good energy. Uh, and I had a really fun conversation with her. She has a new novel out, her debut novel. It's called Queen Sugar. And it's available now from Pamela Dorman Books. So let's get right to it, shall we? This is Natalie Bazil. And her new book, once again, is called Queen Sugar. <laughs> I am uh, sitting on the 30th floor of the Sheraton Hotel in Seattle, uh, looking out of the window at what looks like uh, the rest of downtown. Um, See, I'm picturing, you're the second consecutive guest that I've had on who's at AWP. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, by the time people hear this, it'll be post-AWP, but what I'm imagining with you staring out of your 30th floor window is like looking down on the streets and it's like the walking dead. There's just mobs. Exactly. There's just mobs of writers. <laughs> that is exactly right. That is exactly right. Just, That's hilarious. They're, yeah, they're just marching on the convention center. <laughs> I had not thought of that, but that is, that is pretty, that pretty much captures it. I say yeah. that, I say that with love. So, Oh, listen, I say that as a walking dead fanatic. So <laughs> right. I could completely appreciate that. You, you want to know something though? I haven't been able to watch. So don't, don't no spoilers, but I haven't been no able spoilers. to watch since like the end of season three because oh, man. I actually, I had to have like a negotiation with my wife because, and I think she has a point, but uh, the only time that I would have time to watch this show is before bed. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a, it's a kind of a rough show to watch as you're trying to yeah. fall asleep. So it's like, yeah. She's like, I don't want to see zombies like eating people as I'm like drifting off. <laughs> and I was like, you, wait, you're not tough enough? Like we're adults here. We know this is make-believe. But then it was like, you know what? I feel like I, sometimes I couldn't sleep. It would, it, it's a little bit of an unsettling show, you know? It is. And, you know, Brad, I confess, I am not, you know, a, a zombie kind of person typically. Me neither. But I'm hooked on this show. And, but after the first season, I used to watch the first season, you know, Sunday night, 9 o'clock. And I was I was kind of traumatized by it, you know. It was hard to go to sleep that first season. So yeah. well, and it was just and it really bothers me because I have a young child. So um, I was especially sensitive to Carl. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, <laughs> when he was because it's like you know what if you live in a zombie apocalypse world, yeah. don't let your kid go play by himself in the woods. Yeah. Just keep him by you at all times and yeah. You know, 
have a pistol out for God's sake. Exactly. I felt like every episode, like he would, there would be like a moment where Carl just goes and like wanders off into a field and it's like, you know, that, that was too much for me. So I know, Anyhow, I know. Uh, well, AWP, I take it you're going to be participating as like a reader or a panelist or are you just there for the festivities or what's happening? You know, I'm really, I'm really just here for the festivities. Um, some friends and I put together a panel, <clears throat> but you know, it wasn't accepted, which is fine. You know, um, most times AWP's on the on the East Coast, and you know, so I trek back there every other year. But this year, with it being in Seattle, it was like, well, you know, it's a two hour flight. Why not go? So, you know, Where, I'm seeing, I'm you yeah, I'm going to see friends. Do you live in San Francisco? I live in San Francisco. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like a West Coast. Now you're making me feel bad because I'm in Los Angeles. <laughs> oh man. Okay. <laughs> I've been getting tweets like, where are you? You know, and it's like, yeah. oh, you know, I guess I, I, I go through this every year because like I uh, usually don't go, but then I feel mm -hmm. like I should go. I don't know. You know, it's this whole negotiation. I know. I know. I, I go every other year. That's kind of my thing. That's enough. I'm going to go every leap year. Is that good enough? <laughs> Is that acceptable? Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Am I participating enough in the literary community? Yes, you are. Okay. Yes, so, you are. That's good. Let's talk about you. Um, okay. You're a writer. You became a writer somehow. Yeah. Uh, as as you know, as has everyone practically that I've spoken with on this program, and I'm always curious to know uh, how the hows and whys of that. So, oh, what happened to you? <laughs> well, how did this happen? <laughs> how did I get hit over the head with this? Well, you know, the story. The I I think I've always wanted to write, and um, but I was afraid to do it. To be perfectly honest. Um, when I graduated, I went to school, I went to Berkeley and I was an English major and loved it and actually had a, a professor, Charles Muscatine, whose, uh, writing class I took and I loved it. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do, but frankly, I was just too afraid. And so I graduated from Cal in 88 and went back to Los Angeles and for 11 years worked in my, a business that my dad had started um, selling aluminum to the aerospace and aircraft industry. And when I tell you it was soul-killing, <laughs> I, I cannot even describe how unhappy I was. Um, but I stuck around for 11 years, and I would come home in the evenings, and I would write. Uh, I would write on the weekends, you know, do that whole thing. But I just couldn't muster the courage. And so I remember sitting at my desk, um, flipping through my desk calendar because I was in sales, right? And I was flipping through this calendar and all of a sudden I realized, holy shit, I've been here for 11 years. And on one hand, those 11 years had just dragged. But on the other hand, they had flown by. And I realized, you know, if I don't do something soon, I'm going to look up and another 11 years will have passed. My dad will be ready to retire. He'll be thinking about that, and he'll look to me to take on this business. And I'll do it, but I'll hate myself for it. And one day I will wake up, and I won't care. And I thought, you know, I can't do that to him, and I can't do that to myself. So I quit. And uh, So how did that you know, moment go? How did that moment go where you tell you – because I know like a lot of times parents, especially parents who have built up a business, that you know, there's the natural impulse to want to like – pass it on, you know? Oh, yeah. So did, oh, yeah. was that a, a, a dicey conversation when you finally broke it, the news to him? Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you this. I actually had that conversation twice. I had that conversation once um, in like 1990 to 1992 
when I went into my dad's office and said, you know, dad, I'm really not happy. I, I really want to be a writer. I'm going to go back to grad school in English. And his response was, why, why would you go back in English? Why not go back and get an, M- an MBA? And I said, because that's really what I, I don't want an MBA. I don't want to be in business. So I actually went back the first time and got a master's in um, Afro-American studies with a concentration in literature, thinking that I was going to go on and get a PhD and, you know, be an academic. But my mother lured me back. I don't blame her, but, you know, she, like, raised my salary just enough for me to want to stay. <clears throat> and besides, I chickened out. Right. So I stayed again until I was so miserable. <laughs> we all were so miserable. I admit, you know, I just wasn't happy there. And I, I'm sure I was, you know, not a pleasant person to work with. And so when I finally flipped through that desk calendar that day and realized it had been, you know, 11 years and I wasn't doing what I wanted to do, that's when I just went into my dad's office and said, you know, I I just can't do this anymore. And by that time, Brett, I think he was ready to see me go. You know, he, he was ready. He understood that I, you know, had tried to do this thing and wasn't happy and, you know, he released me and I released myself and that was it. So, you know, it, it, it took two dips, two bites at the apple before I could actually say, I can't do it. Well, and it's not, and like, it's not like you didn't give it a fair shot. I mean, 11 years, you know, you know that's, like, that's, a good, that's kind of what I figured. That's a good sample. So, I mean, yeah. but at least he was, I mean, so the, the relationship is good with your folks like that. That didn't like rupture anything. They understood to a degree. They understood. Yeah. By the time I left, they understood and they were happy for me, you right. know, and you're from L.A.? Originally from L.A., yeah. Okay, what part? I, I mean, I, I live down here, so where were you? Where well, were you? Then, then you know. Originally, I'm from Palos Verdes, which, you know, is a suburb of L.A., sure. to be technical. But, um, you know, it's funny because, so I lived in, I grew up in Palos Verdes, went to Cal, lived elsewhere for a few years, but then my husband and I moved back to Palos Verdes when our first daughter was born. And I, and I hated it. I hated it because, you know, it was suburban and, you know, there were no, people were lovely and nice and kind and all this, but I needed writers. I needed to be writers. So even though I lived in PV for seven years, um, from two, from 1996, six or seven until 2003, all of my writing buddies were in LA and so I lived in Palos Verdes, but I was constantly on the 405 or on the 110, you know, driving into L.A. to go to workshops or, you know, to have coffee with writing friends and all that. So I kind of straddled the, you know, I, I straddled two lives for a long time. So, okay, so how did you meet these writing friends? I mean, did you have friends that you had grown up with or knew um, or were you meeting people online at that point? I mean, I guess late 90s would have been the, the dawn of such a thing. Yeah, you know. Okay, so in 1999, I went to Breadloaf for the first time. Okay. And just as a contributor, and on the last day I was there, I met uh, some people who had been telling me, oh, you've got to meet this woman, Dylan Landis. She's another writer. And we met literally in the last 30 minutes before we both headed back home. She and her husband were moving to L.A. from New York, and I was already in L.A., so we exchanged email and, for, you know, contact information real fast. And when she moved, you know, three weeks later, we met for coffee. 
And Dylan and I started going to Jim Caruso's writing workshop at Santa Monica College. Sure, yeah. You know that. And yeah. and that just opened up a whole new world of, you know, of writers. And so from that moment on, I started going to Jim's workshop every week. And, you know, I met other writers, Mary Otis, and um, just some fabulous people who were all there in L.A. Because, you know, Jim's workshop is kind of, you know, it's Mecca, an, right? An, it's an institution. It is. It is. And, and so that's how I kind of, you know, met all of my writer friends. It was at Jim's workshop. Okay. So, and yeah. was this UCLA time or was this post-UCLA? This was, um, this was 2000. So it was after UCLA. So you had your master's. <clears throat> I had my master's. Yeah. And I, you know, I was friends with, you know, I'd, I'd stayed in touch with, you know, the people who I met in that program, but they were all academics. You know, so um, they were going off and getting their, you know, PhDs and, you know, doing that kind of thing. And I was the one who kind of said, you know, academic life is great, but I really want to write the book. So and, and that's not to knock academia at all, but it just wasn't for me. Um, what, what about it? What about it? Just like you, you just felt like the work that you would have to do to, to be a teacher or, you know, a, a tenured professor would have would have uh, overshadowed the creative work that you wanted to do? or You know, it was more uh, just a feeling of frustration that um, writing academic analysis, you know, kind of critiques of other people's critiques of the creative work was not my interest. I wanted to write the books. I didn't want to spend my life, You're like, you I, know, want, I want to be critiqued. I don't want to be critiquing people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that's exactly it. You know, I mean... I, I hope that, that that doesn't sound egocentric. It wasn't even about, or egotistical, it wasn't even about, you know, having other people's attention on me. It was just more feeling like, you know, I just want to be able to tell the stories. And that's what that's what made me think academia, at least at that point in my life, was not for me. Right. You and, know? and in terms of, like, making a living, because, I mean, I think a lot of people in academia who write fiction or write creative nonfiction or whatever, um, you know, it's, it's sort of the day job and you're, it's always, a you've str- got to do it. Yeah. You've got to do it. And yeah. it's, a, and it's a job that, you know, insofar as a day job can tends to mesh well with the writing life because you have kind of a flexible schedule or whatever. Whereas right. like, you know, the job at the aluminum, aluminum tubing company, probably, <laughs> you're not going to be able to like carve out like a three hour block in the middle of the day to go like muse, you know? So, right. Um, so how were you, you know, how were you able to do the work, you know, and then what, like, were you doing anything else? Was your husband working? Yeah. Well, you know, my husband is a lawyer, so, you know, to some degree we could afford for me to, you know, write full time, but I'm not, I'm I'm not going to lie. That was terrifying to me because, you know, I had always, I had grown up kind of, you know, with the expectation that I would, you know, kind of make my own way and, you know, earn my own living. And so to to have to be dependent upon someone else was really hard. It was really hard and um scary. You know, it was it was it was it was scary too. So But, but also maybe motivating. I mean, I think if you have cuz that's the thing about it is that to be a writer you know, you read enough literary history, and obviously there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat, but, yeah. I've, you know, you read literary biography, and there's almost always, um, what's the word, a benefactor, right? Is the mm-hmm. benefactor, A benefactor is the person who supports the artist, right? 
Right. Right. Uh, so whether it's like, you know, somebody married, uh, like the writer married somebody who came from money or the writer mm-hmm. had like, uh, some wealthy, you know, widower who decided to f- bankroll them or somebody swooped in at the last minute. Like I'm thinking of Harper Lee, you know, she had mm-hmm. some, some wealthy friends in New York city who for Christmas one year gave her a year to write and just like paid her for Ooh. her life. And that's Holy how, cow. that's how she wrote to kill a mockingbird. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I, I always like notice that. And then, you know, for, for every one of those, there are others where it's like they lived in a cardboard box and wrote a masterpiece. <laughs> you know? so, I'm not trying to say that it's always the case, but it's often the case where there's yeah. some good fortune somehow. And, um, yeah. and you have to have that support almost in order to get the work done. And yeah. that can be hard to reconcile for somebody who has that value of like self-reliance and, yeah. you know, it can be hard to kind of accept that support. Yeah, it, it was. It, it was hard for me. And, and, you know, you mentioned motivation. I think it was a huge motivating factor because I felt like, you know, okay, my husband is making certain sacrifices and, you know, believes in this work and I need to make this happen. I need to be at the desk every day. You know, I need to do that in order to demonstrate to him, but also to me, that this was what I had committed to do. And I mean, it was an easy thing for me to do because since I'd spent 11 years doing something I was so unhappy at, at doing, it was a privilege for me to go and, you know, report to the desk every day. But I did want, I did feel an obligation to, you know, put in the time. And to produce. I mean, and to like, you know, it's one thing to put in the time, but it's another thing to get like a a saleable work done. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and what about uh, motherhood? You mentioned that you had a child. Well, yeah, we have two girls. Okay. Um, you know, and, and the funny thing is, you know, when I started this book, my youngest daughter was one and my oldest daughter was four. My oldest daughter is now a freshman in college and my youngest daughter is a sophomore in high school. So that tells you how long it took to you know, we'll see this, give birth this, to this, thing. this makes me feel better because like I'm working. So I have a, I have a three-year-old and I'm working mm-hmm. so slowly and mm-hmm. uh, I'm not trying to blame anyone. I love having my daughter, but it's just like, it definitely makes uh time more oh, difficult yeah. to because it's, it's the whole thing. You like, you need that space. You need kind of, you need to have kind of nothing to do. And when you have young exactly. children, you almost never have nothing to do. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Especially in, uh, wait till you get to the age where your son is, you know, it's, in, a, do- it's a girl. So oh, uh, your daughter, okay. Yeah. Is in any, any number of, you know, summer day camps where every week, you know, the schedule is different. Oh my God. It, Oh, and the birthday parties. I can't do the- <laughs> I can, there's nothing more dreadful than a child's birthday party. <laughs> My wife and I like Rochambeau last week and she had to go to Chuck E. Cheese. So, I mean, oh like, my God. you just that- deal. It's a, it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's part of this age range. And well, you know, the thing about it is that as much as I, um, you know, as much as I'm down on it, my daughter, you mm-hmm. know, kids love birthday parties at this age. Oh, they do. They love it. So oh, yeah. I can't be too big of a Scrooge. You got to go and let them sing and eat their cake. So, oh yeah. Well, can I just tell you the happiest? Oh, so it's the kitty birthday parties and it's the kitty movies that killed me. And I can remember having to take our kids to um, this movie where the dogs were talking. There were all of these dogs from outer space and they were talking. And my husband and I looked at each other and just thought, 
we have hit a new low. <laughs> and, you know, and so every movie after that was measured. I think that movie was called like Good Boy or something. And so the happiest day was the day when we could actually drop our kids off at those bad movies and they were old enough to go in with friends and see them by themselves and we didn't have to sit through those anymore. Right. So... You have a little ways to go. I bottomed it. I think I, I hit rock. My personal rock bottom was Disney on Ice this past Christmas. <laughs> I've never seen more sad, defeated adults in one space in my entire life. Just like parents just slumped over in their seats. You know? <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> uh, but of course, you know, it's the, the, the kids love it. But, you know, and, and I don't, you know, because it's, it's hard because I think people listening who don't have children can sometimes do an eye roll because people who have kids tend to talk about that a lot. But. It's a it's a real thing that writers yeah. come up against, or a lot of writers oh, come yeah. up against, because um, you know it's it's bad enough to have a day job or need a day job to support your writing, but then you have kids and you've got to balance that. And yeah. um, the good news is that people find a way to do it. Uh, That's the, right. the bad news is that it really takes some uh, hustle and maybe oh, yeah. and maybe some um, low grade amphetamines. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's like it can be an extraordinary push to get it all yeah. taken care of and taken care of well. So, you know, I'm always curious how people do it. And it's nice to well, hear that it took, it just took you a little bit longer than it might have otherwise. Yes. Yeah, it did. Because, you know, I mean, m my feeling was also this, <clears throat> I felt like, okay, and I, and I don't have any, you know, it's not about being the perfect parent. It's not about that. But I did always think to myself, okay, I can always revise this book. I only have one shot with these kids. And so, you know, that was also part of the struggle for me was, you know, battling that internal desire to kind of slip away and, you know, get back to the book, you know, having to balance that against, okay, well, they really want my full attention for these, you know, 20 minutes. Okay, I can give them that, you know. And it was funny, I was talking to another uh, friend of mine just last week, and he has, uh, I think his son is six, and he just kind of came out with a short story collection a little while ago, and he was saying that, you know, so now all of the publicity stuff is over, and he's home, you know, every day trying to write, but he's the primary, you know, child care person. And he was saying that right now he's starting to feel that pull, you know, of really needing to get back to work and really needing to get back in the stories. And so he's trying to hold out, you know, until summer vacation when he can, you know, do that. So it's a constant struggle. Yeah. It's constant. Yeah. But, you know, it's worth it. <laughs> it's worth it. Um, so, okay. So, uh, like, when it comes to your writing, like, I had, a, I actually had a listener ask me to ask this question, and I'm, I'm glad that, that uh, she did or he did. I think they had initials, so I don't know the gender. But okay. they uh, they asked me to ask the next person that I talk to, uh, what they think their strengths and weaknesses are as a writer. Uh, that's a tough question, but is there something about storytelling? Are there aspects of it that you feel like you're really strong at? And then are there aspects of it that you're thinking that you need work on, or it might not be, um, yeah. you know, like your, yeah. your, your strong suit? Um, I'd say, <clears throat> Strengths, I'd say, uh, well, I have a love of place. I mean, you know, my, this book is about Louisiana, which is, you know, in so many ways, its own character. I really love place and setting. I, I just, 
I love to look at it. I love to think about it. I love to write about it. And, you know, I'm told that that's one of the things that's really compelling about this book. Um, do you, you know, have, do you it, have, do you have roots in Louisiana? My dad's from Louisiana. Okay. My dad was from Louisiana. Par- so that's my, kind my, of my, my connection. My parents are both from Louisiana. So my whole, are they really? Yeah. My whole family down from down South. Uh, I, I was raised in the Midwest, but my, uh, both my parents, grandparents, all my aunts and uncles and cousins, uh, you know, outside of Baton Rouge. Uh, no kidding. South Louisiana, you know, between. Baton, no kidding. Yeah, between Baton, little towns between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. Okay. Well, oh, oh my God, I had no idea. Well, we have that in common then. Yeah. Mine are little towns, you know, around Lake Charles. So. Okay. It's, I mean, it's wow. a, Louisiana is a rich, I mean, for all of its ills, um, mm-hmm. you, you know, the politics are crazy. and Right. You know, there's a lot that you could point to, but it's such a rich cultural place. It's a fun place to go to, and it feels, it uh, it feels um, like it has a real deep cultural identity in ways that um, other states might not. For me, you know, like when you're in Louisiana, you feel like you're there. <laughs> I totally agree with you. Yeah. I completely agree, and you know, that's the thing that keeps me going back because you, I don't get that feeling anywhere else in the country. When I step off the plane in Louisiana, it's like I am someplace different, and I love that. Yep, yep. And I, yeah, oh. New Orleans especially. It's, I mean, I, I don't know. Oh, my you, God. It's fun to go to. And love the, it. And the food. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, my God. Oh, don't even get me started. I love it. Okay. I love it. So, okay, do you have family back there still? You know, um, my dad's family is all still there. Um, my dad passed away in 2011, um, but his siblings are all still living, and they live, you know, in and around Lake Charles. I have a great aunt who lives in, still lives in the little town where my dad grew up, which is the town of Elton, near Kinder and, and uh, Jennings. So, yeah, my, whole, my dad's whole family is uh, in and around you know, South Louisiana. Okay, so when you were writing Queen Sugar, did you go down for like research trips, or has your whole life and past visits just been one big research trip? Like, <laughs> did, you, did you have to go in explicitly you know, to, like take, to take notes and take photos and... You know, like was yeah. there was there a trip like that or multiple trips like that? There, there, uh, there were multiple trips. You know, when I started this book, it was actually set in a fictitious uh, version of the town my dad grew up in, but the crop was wrong because you know he's closer to the Texas border. They grow rice and crawfish primarily, yeah. and that's not. I mean, it's a fine crop, but it's not a poetic crop. But in 2005, I, have a, I had a good friend, she's still a good friend, in San Francisco, and her whole family is from New Iberia, which is, you know, smack dab in the middle of sugarcane country. Sure. And so I went down there. She, she lives in San Francisco, but she uh, had this big 40th birthday party weekend in New Iberia, and she invited some of her San Francisco friends to go. And so... You know, a bunch of us flew down there. Well, I flew down a couple days early to do exactly what you're talking about, do some research to try to figure out what crop my character was going to work and what she was going to inherit. And so I hired this woman. Her name was Alice, and she had this little tour company in Crowley, Louisiana. And so I called her and I said, hey, listen, I'm this writer from San Francisco. I need to come down there to figure out what, you know, to look at different you know, crops. And so we, she took me to a sugar cane. No, scratch that. She took me to a sweet potato 
manufacturer. And she took me to the Crystal Rice Plantation in Crowley, and nothing seemed right. She even took me to this man's backyard garden, and I can remember, like, standing in this man's backyard and him kind of looking at me thinking, you know, what the hell is this woman doing looking at my, you know, okra and my peppers, right? Right. But I was looking for a crop, and I couldn't find anything. Well, two days of this, and I went to my friend's house. Her name is Stephanie. I went to her house in New Iberia, and, you know, kind of with my tail between my legs, and I was really discouraged. And I said, you know, I've been down here for a couple days looking for a crop for my character, and I can't find anything. And just kind of casually, she said, you know, well, my mother owns this sugarcane land, why don't I take you out to see it? So we hop in the car and we drive down Highway 182 and pull over onto, into this sugarcane field. And I still get chills thinking about that moment because I stepped out into the middle of this field and I could see how my story would fit together. It was perfect. It was one of those moments that every writer prays for when you just can see how you're going to write the book. And so I picked up this story that I had been writing that took place in, you know, crawfish rice country, and I set it down in sugarcane country. That was 2005. And so from that moment on, July something, 2005, until I sold the book in 2011, I would go back to New Iberia and Franklin and Generet and New Orleans like three or four or five times a year, as often as I could, because I had made friends there. You know, I had made friends with sugarcane farmers and people whose lives revolved around that crop. And my feeling was always that I had to make sure that it was right. I wanted, you know, whether or not the book ever sold or not, I wanted them to be able to read the story and say to me, you got it right. You You captured you know, you captured this culture, you captured the place. And so I, I went back more times than I can count. Well, it's, it's interesting. You know, you talk about place being something that, that is a strength of yours as a writer. Um, and, and then you talk about how kind of once you found the right place and once you mm-hmm. found the setting, you know, it was like the, uh, the Rosetta stone or whatever for your, for the yeah. fuller story. And, you know, sometimes you hear stories of writers getting that from a character name or from even from a title, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But um, I think places, I mean, a character spring from place. It's, it's setting is, is so critical. And if you don't have a handle on that, it's hard to have a handle on the rest. But Absolutely. Well, you know, Annie Prue has a quote about that. She talks about, you know, only a certain kind of character rises up from, you know, Newfoundland or Wyoming, right? I mean... The fact that they can survive in those environments says something about who they are. And I mean, I'm doing, I'm mangling her quote, but I read that years ago and thought, you know, she's, she's absolutely right. So for me, place and character are intertwined, you know? Hmm. And then what about, you know, we talked about strengths and weaknesses. So what aspects of the book resisted you or what aspects of fiction writing do you find yourself having to work at really hard? Oh, man. Um, Oh, my God. Where do I start? Harder than the rest. (laughs) (laughs) Where do I start? You know, I think um, it took me a long time to figure out the main character. You know, I think, and maybe this is a classic challenge that writers face, but, you know, 
figuring out how to give that main, how to make that main character an agent in her own story was really hard for me. You know, I mean, for years, you know, Charlie was kind of this passive observer who was thinking about stuff, but not doing anything, you know? And I can remember once giving a chapter to my writing group back in San Francisco and one of the writing group members, you know, screaming at me, Charlie is ruining this book. She's ruining this book, you know? And it's because... Just just what you want to hear. (laughs) Just, oh my God. It was awful. It was awful. But, you know, she was right. And and I'll be totally candid. The truth was Charlie was too well-mannered as a character because I was too well-mannered as a writer, you know? I was constantly, like, you know, thinking, okay, I can't say that. In in my own life, Brad, not even in, in her life on the page, but in my life as a writer, I was just overly concerned with, you know, doing the right thing, not offending people, you know. That sounds not familiar. Doing, you know what I mean? Sure. And, and, and so that was coming across in the book because, you know, and this is something that Jim Caruso used to say in workshop all the time. Find the hot spots, you know. Find the moments that are uncomfortable. And for years, I just totally shied away from that. And I was shying away from that on the page because I was shying away from that in my own life. And it was only once I kind of became comfortable with, you know, shit, this isn't going to be perfect. And, you know, it's going to be messy and it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be difficult. When I kind of broke through that in my own life, it was easier for me to write that character. But it was a huge obstacle for years. It was just, it was a huge, huge barrier. And I, and I have to thank you know, this woman in my writing group for literally standing up and screaming this at me. <laughs> so for people, you know? listen, for people listening out there, if you have a writer friend who is uh, <laughs> being too polite, stand up and start shouting at them, dress them That's down. Right. That's right. <laughs> so That's well, right. can you, can you give an example of a way in which, um, Charlie got, uh, messier? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like you talk oh, about yeah. being less polite. Like what, what, what was, mm-hmm. what's an example of like where you went to a hot spot? And you made it hotter or you let it be hot yeah. instead of trying to cool it off or make it more right. uh, presentable, as it were, or whatever. Like, wh- wh- give, yeah. us an, give us an example of how that actually manifested. Okay. Well, so th- the first thing that comes to mind is there's a chapter in the book where <clears throat> Charlie is um, at this equipment auction with uh, this older farmer who is helping her with her farm. And they, she and this guy, his name is Denton they run into these two uh, people from the sugar mill, right? Who are these real corporate types? And, you know, they're having this kind of pleasant exchange, but one of the guys from the sugar mill is really, you know, being provocative, intentionally provocative, you know, veiled threats, you know, all of this kind of stuff, really giving her shit. And, there's a moment when Charlie finally kind of thinks to herself, you know, fuck you, fuck you. And she responds to something that he says um, and pretty much says, fuck you to him. Right. Well, that's a moment when as a writer, I never, and maybe it sounds mild now, but you know, it's a moment when I never would have said that to a person and probably still would not say that to a person, you know, 
in my everyday life. Except in a writing workshop. Except in a writing <laughs> workshop. Exactly. Exactly. But I knew that she had to say something in the book, you know. Um, there are other moments later on where she has, you know, conversations with uh, her half-brother, Ralph Angel, where she just kind of lays it on the line and... Um, or she thinks something, you know, to herself privately that I never would have had her say in early drafts of the novel. And I just had to let her go there, you know. Um, was, it ever, was it ever when you're writing these scenes where she gets emotional or angry or, you know, she ventures into this territory that's, uh, that's a hot spot or whatever? Was it painful to write that? Oh, yeah. And you've got oh, yeah. you, you to let it be. Because I'm finding that when I'm working on this book that I'm working on now, like, a lot of this stuff, like I'll finish and I'll just be like, oh, God, you know, mm-hmm. like, and it can be sometimes challenging because I'll think to myself, like, is this too much? Like, are people just right. going to be, are, are people just going to be worn out by this? Like, how do I saw, I feel like this need to want to soften it or, or like, you know, my tendency is to want to kind of throw a joke or two in there, which isn't the, mm-hmm. it's not the worst impulse in the world, but it can undercut sometimes. It's always a balancing act. That's right. That's right. You know, and I'll, I'll tell you something else. Okay. So for years, I was really worried about having, okay, Ralph Angel, the antagonist in the book, Charlie's half-brother. For years, I was really, really worried about how he was, how I was portraying him as a black man in the book. And, you know, because I didn't, like, I was thinking, oh, God, well, he can't be this, and he can't be this, and, you know, he has to be this positive image, and, you know, for all of these, you know, cultural issues, you know, cultural reasons. That's, I the, really that's, the, that, that's the master's degree in Afro-American studies, probably, right? Did that have precisely. Any, yeah. You were precisely. Like, you were like, what's the verb? Academicing it? Yeah. <laughs> totally, you know? And so I was really worried about that. Well, you know, he had to be a certain kind of character in the book, which was not pretty, right? Which was not perfect. And... I got to the point where I just had to let him be who he was going to be on the page. And, and, and it's not perfect. Um, and I worried about that. You know, I worried, what are, what are black men going to say when they read this? What are black women going to say? What are, what, what are my readers, black or white, going to say about the way I have portrayed this character? And I finally had to, and I was actually paralyzed by that. And I had to just finally say, you know, let him be who he's going to be on the page. You've got to let your characters be who they are, you know. Exactly. And, and, but, you know, I understand that pressure because um, you hear, you know, you read about it in the media. There's all this, um, I think, justified complaining about how black men are often portrayed in uh, popular entertainment, you know. Right. It's a lot of times it's, it's the thug or it's the you know, the, the dad who's not there or whatever exactly. it is, it's these negative stereotypes that get reinforced by this. And so, um, but at the same time, you know, there are, uh, black people, there, in are, those yeah. characters, there right? are those characters in life and, you know, they come right. from someplace. So you gotta, you right. gotta kind of allow, I don't know. It's, it, it, at some point I think it comes down to being true to the story. Right. Um, Absolutely. and you can't resist it. I mean, these characters are, are, are who they are. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and that's what I finally had to just, I just had to release myself, you know. Um, and there's, I won't give it away. I won't spoil it. But, you know, there's a moment <clears throat> near the end 
when Charlie and Ralph Angel really butt heads. And it's because Ralph Angel says some things and, and accuses her of some things. And I tell you, Brad, when I was writing that, I would have paid money not to write that scene. You know, I would have paid money to let that conversation, make that conversation more um, polite and cleaner. But, you know, when I started writing it and I started having them, you know, say what was really on their minds, I actually think it's one of the best, one of the best moments in the book because it's so true, you know. Well, and it's like if you're writing the thing and you're getting emotional, that's usually a yeah. good sign. That's right. If you're getting bored, if you're getting bored, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's not, it, you're not doing your job. That's it. I mean, if you're bored, imagine how bad it's going to be for whoever's reading it. And yeah. Um, so, did you have any concerns about family, like reading this? Like, you know, that that can be an issue. Uh, that's another issue I'm dealing with. Uh, you yeah. Know, where you're, you're writing stuff, and you're like, God, is this going to expose people, or is your family going to react badly when they read this? Are they going to see themselves in it in ways that? Uh, they feel are less than flattering, or are they going to think that it's too one way or the other? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like, did you struggle I, with that? Absolutely. You know, I didn't. Um, only because, you know, this, this, there are characters who are loosely inspired by my, you know, some family members, but I, I really felt comfortable with, with this being fiction, you know, and it is that. Now, by contrast, my sister wrote a memoir years ago. Um, my, I have a younger sister whose name is Jennifer Bazil, and she wrote this memoir called The Black Girl Next Door, which was about, you know, our family's experience growing up in Palos Verdes, you know, in the 70s and 80s and being, you know, kind of on that bleeding edge of, you know, that generation of, of black kids who were set down in, you know, whose, whose experiences were almost completely integrated, right? But we were maybe the first family you know, an all-white neighborhood or whatever. Well, Jennifer wrote this book about her experience and, you know, talked about our family. And that was really interesting um, because, you know, I did, she did have to deal with family members' reactions, you know, immediate family, but then also cousins. I never felt compelled to write that story. Um, I think it's valid but I'm, I'm fiction, you know, do you know why I guess why? Yeah. Why am I fiction or why did I, didn't why, I, why, why fiction? You know, I just love the freedom that fiction affords you. You know, I, I'm sure you've heard that old, you know, adage about you can tell the truth in fiction, right? Sure. And so I don't know. It, it's just always appealed to me. Um, it's, it's what you read, probably, I would imagine. It's what I read, although I do have to confess that, you know, since this book took me 13 years to write or 11 years to write, however you, you know, however you want to calculate it, I was so afraid of siphoning off a full full of creative energy, you know, and giving it to another project that I never wrote a lot of, you know, short stories. I never wrote a lot of creative nonfiction. And so when I finished the book, it was like, oh, man, now I can actually try my hand at these at personal essays or, you know, short stories, whatever. So I'm doing a little bit more of that now, but it's it's still not memoir. You know, it's it's something that kind of straddles 
it's creative nonfiction, you know? So I, I, I feel like dipping my toe into those waters just a bit, but I, fiction is what I do. You know, that's who I am. Yeah. I'm sort of like at that, I'm at that like line right now too, where what I'm writing is essentially true, but Mm -hmm. I'm, but I'm, I'm wondering if like, maybe I could embellish, I could just embellish this and twist things and make it into fiction so that Mm -hmm. I can have the freedom to change things and to protect the innocent. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe. And then also to make this, make the thing better. You know, it's, it's, it's that nice freedom where if there's connective tissue that's missing and you're, you're bound by the rules of nonfiction, then that's right. You can't just make them up, unfortunately. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And I like to be able to just go where I need to go, you know? Yeah. So what about um, influences? Like when you look at your book, I think every work of art, every book is, um, you know, contains the DNA of Mm -hmm. the the books that influenced it. Like, can you uh, point to like two or three or four books that really, yeah. What, what, like what, you know, where does, on what shoulders does Queen Sugar sit? If that makes sense. Well, First and foremost, Ernest Gaines, hands down. You know, Ernest Gaines wrote, um, you know, A Gathering of Old Men, A Lesson Before Dying, um, so many books that were set in South Louisiana. And, you know, he, to me, he is just such a huge influence, you know, looking at <clears throat> looking at that place and really celebrating South Louisiana culture at a particular time. So I owe, I owe him a huge debt. Um, so many other Southern writers, you know, Eudora Welty, Flannery O'Connor, are huge for me, huge influences. Um, I also have a tremendous amount of admiration for uh, Elizabeth Strout. I, I can't tell you how many times I read and, you know, just almost wept over passages in Olive Kittredge. I love that book. I have given that book to more people than I can tell you just because it is such a beautiful, it's such a beautiful book. Um, So those are probably, you know, the the small handful that come to mind. Toni Morrison, of course, Mm -hmm. you know, huge influence. Not so much on my writing, um, you know, sentence by sentence, but on kind of the the stance that she takes. You know, she, her weight is so regal and hefty. It's what I reach for. You know, I don't think Queen Sugar is beloved by any stretch, by any stretch. But but that's like the North Star or that, you know. That I, is I the get North it. Star. Yeah, no, no, yeah. I get it. I get it. So yeah. uh, let's talk about getting it into print. I mean, because, you know, there's it's one thing to spend the, this decade working on it. Uh, and then you finally get the manuscript where it's ready to show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's the story there? How did you get it? Oh, man. How did it find a publisher, the agent, the whole thing? Because that's, you know, it's such a, there's, I always like joke that there's a lot of, and it's not even really a joke, but there's a lot of false summits when it comes to being a writer. Totally. So it's totally. like, I finished the manuscript and then it's like, nope, you're not at the top. You know? and then you're like, <laughs> I got an agent. You're like, nope. And then it's like, I got a publisher. And it's like, nope, go do publicity. And it's like, it's just constantly like another hill to climb. And It is so true. I love the idea of false summits. I, I'm going to steal that from you because yeah. that is so cool. So here, here's my story. <clears throat> so I worked on the book, worked on the book, worked on the book, you know, from 99 until 2009, right? 10 years. Went back to school in that time, you know, went to writers' conferences, the whole thing. Figured out 
how I was going to be a writer. Went back to Warren Wilson, the whole deal. So in 2009, I, the book was 567 pages long. It was a monster of a book. I sent it to my dearest, just a dear friend, Dylan Landis, who she would, you know what? Dylan was the woman who I met at Breadloaf in those last 30 minutes. And she and I were taking Jim Crusoe's workshop together. Right. Okay. It's that person. Yeah. Well, she moved away from LA. She moved back to New York in 2009. I sent her the manuscript and Dylan is a, brilliant writer and a brilliant surgeon. She took that book and went through line by line, page by page, and cut and cut and cut and cut and cut. She cut out all the fat, all the dead wood, until that book was 425 pages. I think she did this three times for me before I even sent it out to agents. That sounds I heavenly. Nev- I was going to say, the, oh my God. you're basically her kidney donor. Like, like you owe her. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. That's an I, will give, I will give Dylan anything she asks for, right. for what she did for me with that book. So that was first. So she worked, she, you know, cut the book down. Okay, so then I thought, okay, I'm ready to send it out. Summer of 2009, like, well, the spring of 2009, I sent it to five agents just five. These were all people uh, to whom I had been introduced by, you know, good friends who were willing to open those doors for me. Of those five, I I don't even think I heard from two of them. They just didn't even respond. (laughs) Two or three. Right. But two or three did respond. And the emails that I got back from them said things like, we love this book. We love the characters. We love the setting. We love the story. This is so wonderful. But we just don't love it enough to represent you. Oh, God, yeah. Right. Lots of capital, Which, all caps loves. That's like a, a, oh a, my God. It seems like it's a go-to. It, I, I got that a lot in, uh, in Hollywood, like on the screenwriting side, too. There's lots of love. <laughs> right. You know, lots of So it was like somebody telling me, we lo- I love you. I just don't love you enough to marry you. That's right. I was right? going to say, there's lots of love, but not a lot of marriage. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have to tell you, the summer of 2009 was the darkest summer of my life, hands down, because, you know, I had these agents who were saying, this is a wonderful story. You know, I just don't want to take a chance on you. And I'll even tell you, there was one agent who had courted kind of, you know, we'd had this warm correspondence through all three years that I was at Warren Wilson. She would write on occasion to say, how's the book? And I'd write back and say, you know, I'm still working. And she'd say, okay, well, send me the manuscript when it's finished. And I would write back and say, okay, okay, I promise I will. So in 2009, I sent it to these agents, two of whom were generous enough to write me these genuinely gracious emails saying, I'm not going to take the book, but if you decide to revise, here's what I would do. And they, and they, I mean, these were like three and four and five page emails, right? Saying, this is what I would do. And I would change this and I would think about this. And so I used their feedback as kind of my roadmap 
for another revision. But in the meantime, I also had, I thought I had, this other agent in my back, not in my back pocket. You know, I'm not saying that like in an asshole way. I'm saying that in like a, okay, well, we've had this warm friendship. I thought it was a friendship for, you know, four years now. Surely, if nobody else takes the book, she will take the book. So I sent the manuscript to her thinking, okay, surely she'll say yes. I get an email back from her on my birthday that says, oh, yeah, that says, well, this isn't really the book I thought it was going to be. No, thanks. And I tell you, Brad, when I got that email, I actually sat on my steps and I just wept because I thought, well, shit, I've been working on this book for 10 years and I don't, what am I going to do? What am I going to do now? And I remember I was going to uh, Ragdale later on that summer for two weeks. And I was so exhausted and so spent. I, like, I remember riding up from the, the uh, Midway Airport or whatever it is up to Lake Forest. And I was like literally slumped over in the cab. I was so discouraged and tired and there was a magazine. I don't know why this magazine was in the back of the cab, but it was. And I flipped it open, and there was a little article in there about this young musician who was saying, you know, I don't care what people tell me. I'm never giving up. I don't care how much rejection I get. I am never giving up on my art. And I, re- I read that, and I thought, well, shit, if she can do it, I can do it. And that was like just enough of a spark for me to go to Ragdale and try to revise the book again. But I'll be honest, for the first five days I was there, I couldn't even look at the manuscript. I mean, it was like physically painful for me to open it up and read it. And so I, I don't know, I worked on short stories or I did something for those first five few days, but I couldn't even look at it. But I eventually went back. <clears throat> I revised it again. It took me a year. 2010, I think, okay, I'm ready to send the book out. I sent it to, back to these, um, you know, the two agents who said that they would leave the door open. But then a friend at the grotto where I have my writing office, she was going to make an introduction for me. And I gave her the first 50 pages. And tell me if I'm being too long-winded. No, 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 This this is great. This is great. Okay. So she said to me, after reading the first five, uh, 50 pages, well, let me know when it's ready. And I was like, what do you mean? It is ready. She's like, no, no, it's not ready. And so I said, well, what do you mean? And so she said, well, you know, it's, it's lovely. The writing is really lovely, but it's like an MFA novel. And I was like, what do you mean an MFA novel? <laughs> as, you're sharpen- right? as you're sharpening, as you're like loading your weapon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. She's like, it's, it's an MFA novel. And what she meant, and, and this is a woman who is, you know, she was a journalist by training. She'd written a couple of memoirs. And she had a different understanding about how books had to work. And so when she said, she wasn't trying to insult me. But what she was saying was that, you know, I had taken like all of these wonderful lessons I had learned about writing from, you know, my MFA program at Warren Wilson. I had taken those lessons and all of those, you know, workshops and 
craft talks and all this kind of stuff. That's what my book was. But my book was like an academic novel in, in a sense. You know what I mean? And so what I had to do, I had to figure out how to translate all of this wonderful training that I had gotten. I had to figure out how to make, I had to translate that into something that would work. And, I, and, I, and I'm not bashing MFA, MFA programs. I'm, I'm the product of one. I loved my program. But I had to figure out a way to take all of that training and like put it through the mill, right? And figure out what came out on the other side. And, you know, the only way I can describe it is, you know, sometimes young medical students, they go to medical school because they are in love with practice, the practice of medicine. But what they have to do is they have to figure out how to become that cool, dispassionate surgeon, right? Which is a different thing. That's what I had to do. And so when my friend said this to me, she said, well, you know, you might want to think about <clears throat> hiring um, like a freelance editor to work with you. Not a book doctor, but a freelance editor. And she said this in 2010, right? After the economic collapse, Publishers had laid off all these people. Sure. So you, you, know, had, you had your pick. <laughs> I, I had my pick, so I had to find somebody who would share my vision. So another friend was, was working at the time with this uh, person in San Francisco who was one of these in-house editors who had been laid off. She swore by this person. So I called this woman on the phone and I explained my novel and she said, okay, sure, yeah, I'll work with you. I gave her the book and we met in San Francisco at a, at a coffee shop. She read the manuscript. Keep in mind, I've been working on this for 10 years. Yeah. We met for coffee and she, I remember she, her pushing my manuscript back across the table and she said, well, at least you have this. At least you have this. Now you can start over. And I remember staring at her across the table with this like shit-eating grin on my face because I like I'm trying to be polite, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, "I'm gonna kill you." <laughs> oh my god! You're telling me to scrap this book and start over. And I was in shock. And so for three days, I literally walked around in a daze, thinking. This woman, this this woman who is an who was an in-house editor, who like who knows what what she's talking about, is telling me to scrap my book and start over, and I just was shocked. And so, that's funny because there, you know, it calls to mind. There is a, an anecdote from um, like a lost generation anecdote where Ernest mm -hmm. Hem Ernest Hemingway handed some of his early stories to Gertrude Stein. Mm -hmm. uh, this is when he was like, you know, fresh off the truck and just got to Paris and, you know, was trying to become a writer. And he handed her some early drafts of his earliest stories. And she read them and she was like, he asked her, you know, he went over to ask her how, what she thought of them. And she was like, those are good. Uh, now, <laughs> and she's like, she's like, now start over and this time concentrate. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, this is what this editor was telling me. And I was like, I, I can't believe this. And so... After like a week of thinking, okay, how, what am I going to do? How am I going to scratch this? What am I going to do? 
I mentioned this to another friend in New York, and she said, you know, that just doesn't sound right. She said, I've read your book, and okay, maybe it's not perfect, but I don't think you have to start over. And so she introduced me to a friend of hers, a wonderful guy by the name of David Groff, who is, was just so perfect for me. And he's a poet. He, you know, has some experience in publishing. And when I called David and we talked on the phone, he was like, oh, I totally get your book. Oh, I know what you're, I, I understand what you're trying to do. And so he and I worked together for, you know, another year. <clears throat> and what he did for me was he could see things in the book that needed to, like, be flushed out or, or needed to be cut or, you know, because I was so close to it, yeah. I couldn't see it. Well, the metaphor, that, it... the metaphor that I always use is, like, when you spend that much time with a manuscript, it's like you're sitting really, like, with your nose, like, an inch away from the television screen. And exactly. It, just, it all looks like snow, you know? Exactly. Exactly. I couldn't see it anymore. And so, like, one of the things that he helped me understand was that, you know, like, all of this with this antagonist, Ralph Angel so much of his life wasn't on the page. It wasn't there. It was in my mind. I thought it was on the page, but it wasn't on the page. And so like, that's one of the observations that he made. And so, you know, we worked together for, you know, another year. When we finished, I sent the book back to the agents who had, uh, you know, said that they were interested. Surprisingly enough, neither of them took it. I, I put one more agent in on that list, uh, my, the agent who I have, Kim Witherspoon. She read the book. 24 hours later, she called me back and said, I love this book. I want to represent you. So I went from, you know, the wilderness, right, with people telling me to start over and scrap what I had and I love it, but I just don't love it enough, to finding the person, the one, you know, the, the, the person who got it. And the lesson that I took away from that was, you know, you have to find people out there who share your vision, right? Right, exactly. Well, You've got to find those people. Well, I mean, that's the thing, because you were ta telling a story about the first freelance editor that you hired, and then obviously there's these agents, and it can be really discouraging because these people have professional credentials, and you, you know, they're smart, yeah. and you, you want to believe that they know what they're talking about, but... You know, they do to a certain extent, but it's it's obviously subjective. And totally. the metaphor that I try to use, and, and this applies as well to people who are out there who might read the book and who might really respond and become fans of your work. Mm -hmm. And so when you're trying to get an agent or you're trying to find an editor to take your book on, it's essentially like you're trying to find the person who in a bookstore would be wandering around with no particular aim and yeah. who, who might stumble upon your book, look at its spine take it off the shelf, open it, start to read a few pages, and then buy it. So those, yes. that's the mathematical odds that you need. You need to find yes. that person. And so once you do, it goes fast. And what I've found is that, you know, I guess there are some instances where a work is just so resonant or, you know, it catch, captures the moment so well or it's so strong that, like, multiple, you know, everyone loves it. I, I guess there's work like that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. You know? Do you know what I'm saying? I don't saying? know. But yeah. I, I think that there are, uh, from in most cases, you know, you've got to find your audience. That's right. And when That's that right. and when that happens, things go fast. That's right. That's you know? absolutely right. I could not agree more. And you know, you, you'd asked earlier, you know, what are my strengths and and my weaknesses? 
you know, another thing, and I don't know if it's a strength or a weakness, but one of the things I really had to learn in this, you know, along the, this journey was what kind of writer am I? You know, what kind of writer am I? And, and I really had to come to terms with that. You know, I, I'm not, you know, like a, a snarky writer. Not that there's anything wrong with snark, but that's just not me. You know, I'm not, I, there's a certain kind of book that I love there's a certain kind of story that I respond to, and that's okay, you know, that's okay. And I, and I think that was one of the huge lessons for me was to just know what kind of writer I wanted to be and what kind of writer I was, and to just allow myself to shed all of that other stuff and just get to work. You know what I mean? Because it would have been so easy to try to be something else because of what, you know, was was hip in the culture at the moment, you know, or what was selling. And I just had to say, you know, Natalie, I just have to be myself. And if I can do that, I'll be happy. So You're singing my song. I think that's basically, I've been doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I would also posit uh, before we go that uh, one of your strengths would have to be perseverance because uh, you stuck with it. And look what, ha- look what happened. Now look at you. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, and it's been such a great pleasure talking with you. This has been really fun. I congratulate you on um, making it to the top of this mountain, this false summit. <laughs> <laughs> really, right? Yeah, so uh, on to the next one, I guess, right? And, and uh, thank you. I certainly wish you luck with that, and I really appreciate the time. I appreciate you uh, giving me the chance, Brad. It's been really fun. Thank you. Okay, folks, there you go. That is Natalie Bazil. Isn't she wonderful? What did I tell you? Go get her book. It's called Queen Sugar. It's out there now from Pamela Dorman Books. You can find Natalie online at nataliebazil.com. She's on Facebook, and you can find her on Twitter, where her handle is at Natalie Bazil. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And don't forget about the app, the free official other people app. It's the uh, official app of this program. It's the best way to listen. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. They just appear. You can download episodes to listen uh, while you're offline. And best of all, you can sign up for premium and access the full archives all via the app. So here's what you do. You go get the app. The app is free and it's available right now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod touch, or Android device, whatever you have. Once you have the app, you get 50 episodes of this podcast for free. The most recent 50 episodes, free. They don't cost you a dime. But then, if you would like to access the other 200 and something episodes, all you got to do is sign up for premium. It's only $2 a month. That's it. Two bucks. And for that, you get access to everything. Every single episode, including my conversations with authors, like Steve Almond, George Saunders, David Shields, Eric Larson, Cheryl Strayed, Sheila Hetty, Kate Zambrino, Ben Marcus, Sam Lipsight. The list goes on. So please go get the app. The app is free. And then once you have the app, uh, please sign up for premium right there within the app and support this program for only $2 a month. I would uh, greatly appreciate it if you did that. Okay? All right. So did you watch the uh, Academy Awards? Am I crazy here? Does anyone out there have a similar feeling about it? Do you concur with my theory? I think it generates sadness. That's the net effect. I think it's a sadness generator. 
Instead of show business, it should be called sad business. <laughs> Please remember that John Singer, that was a bad joke. Uh, Please remember that John Singer Sargent died while reading Voltaire and that Dorothy Parker died of a heart attack. That's it for now. Thanks again to Natalie Bazil. Go get her book. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. Uh, I appreciate that. And uh, I hope that this podcast is not a sadness generator. I hope that this program leaves you nourished and inspired and feeling good about yourself. And see, here's the thing. Uh, I'm a podcaster, not a movie star. <laughs> and uh, I'm a writer of strange uh, literary fiction and nonfiction. You can listen to me and uh, feel good about yourself by comparison. Or at the very least, you can feel a sense of camaraderie in the creative foxhole. This is my gift to the world. I'm here to offer you on a twice weekly basis, my largely incoherent rambling thoughts and a healthy serving of uh, self-loathing and deep-seated anxiety born of creative struggle and a lifetime spent in the depths of a financial quagmire. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you to God and thank you to the Academy.